and in every way, and that we can pray that these resources would be used for the furthering of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're looking at verses 1 through 6. And I believe it'll be on the screen as well, so that maybe we could read this together, if you're willing. And uh, as our custom now is, would you be willing to stand and read John 14, 1 to 6 with me, please, from God's Word. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Could you put there? You may be also. Yeah, thank you so much. Lord, we do not know where you are going. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through me. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. You may be seated. So grateful for this privilege and opportunity to open God's Word this morning. And uh, I count it a great, a very great privilege. And thank you for all your prayers uh, that many of you have prayed so that I would have the strength and ability to minister the word this morning. You know, as reflected on what the Lord would have me to preach, um, you know, I've thought so much of late about home. And that the Lord is preparing a home for each one whom he has redeemed by his death upon the cross. But I had never preached a sermon on heaven and hell, just to focus on, on heaven and hell, which I've been in ministry 51 years, um, and it's hard to believe I've never thought to preach a sermon just on heaven and hell. And I've pondered why is that, why was that the case? And I answered it with a couple of uh, reasons. First of all, I didn't come to Christ out of fear of hell. I came to Christ because I wanted his presence. And I knew that without his presence, I would never have any connection with any of you or anyone else. I just live in my own head. 
Uh, I grew up, I did have an older sister, but she was so much older that I essentially grew up alone. And so I was alone a lot. And I enjoyed being alone. It wasn't that I could entertain myself in, in any number of ways, but uh, uh, that wasn't the problem. But I, I just knew there was, something, there was something terribly wrong with me and that, that what was terribly wrong with me would isolate me from uh, my own family and from anyone else around me. And that motivated me to want to come to Christ. And, uh, and so it wasn't the fear of hell. It was really a desire to know God and to know uh, Jesus Christ and through him to know what it meant to be a human being, really, and to connect with, um, with everyone else. And so it wasn't hell that motivated me, so I just never thought about trying to motivate anybody else to come to faith in Christ. You know, I didn't grow up in that kind of environment. Um, and, uh, and then I heard so many times about, you know, you could be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And so I, I didn't want to be one of those preachers that just made us so heavily minded that, it, uh, you know, how does, how does our faith in Christ relate to the now, right, present, you know, in, in this life? And, uh, and so that was really my main focus. Now, it's not that I didn't know. I used to love the song as a kid, you know, heaven is my home, I'm only passing through. No, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. I don't have to sing it to remember the rest of it, but... Uh, uh, so it's not that I didn't know heaven was my home. I did, and I wanted to go to heaven, but I just couldn't relate. I, you know, I just couldn't relate to streets of gold and the other ways that it was presented, and so I just, it just wasn't real to me. Um, you know, it was hellfire and brimstone real to me. I didn't know really what that meant, and so I just never thought that much about it. And so... Um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to motivate people to, to trust Christ because he is faithful to us today in this life. And so I always focused on how does, how does the, um, God's word relate to our present circumstance and situation. Um, and, and so, I don't know, maybe that may seem like a feeble excuse, but uh, it just... Um, I don't know why, but anyway, now that home is nearer to me than it's ever been, and I think about it quite a lot, then, that, then that's what I thought, uh, you know, I must preach on that because I've had so much time to meditate upon home. And so that's what, why this particular passage is so near and dear to me. Uh, but would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this precious privilege of being able to speak about um, the glories of our God, the love of our Savior who has gone to prepare a place for us, a home that we can live in eternally in your presence. And I pray, Father, that you would please uh, grant to me the strength and the presence of mind to be able to reflect and to meditate and to speak uh, about the glories of heaven, the joys of heaven, and also the grief of hell. 
I pray, Father, that you would grant your grace, your wisdom, that you would send forth your Holy Spirit as you sent forth the rain, that it would pour, the Holy Spirit would so pour upon us as his people that you would move us to a greater love and, and desire to live in your presence both in this life and in the one to come. But also the, give to us greater sorrow and grief for those who, who choose to rebel against you and who would choose to be separated from you eternally. Give us more compassion. Give us more care in our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just thank you and praise you for this privilege now. In Jesus' name, amen. Just think of it that Jesus makes this unbelievable promise in, well, first of all, he says, let not your heart be troubled. And, and, and when Jesus was ministering, there were troubling times, very troubling times. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house. And so he conjures up a vision of a home, my Father's home. Our many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you and then he gives this unbelievable promise, which um, has become near and dear to me in these, in these last few years. I go to prepare a place for you. If you've ever traveled and waited to get to someone's home and they have prepared a room just for you, and have, you know, clean linen and have made it very nice for you, you've known the joy of being welcomed into that home and their hospitality and their kindness. Well, think of it as the eternal God is preparing a home for us. And that's the way he describes our final destiny in Christ is as a home, and that he has prepared everything so that um, we will find joy in his home. And so that helps us in all the troubles we may be experiencing in this present life. It has a great relevance to what we're experiencing um, in our own nation. Our, our nation is very troubled, is it not? And it's troubling. Um, as I ask many of you for prayer, and, and you'll ask me to pray for our nation and for the troubled times that it's enduring. And so it, it's on probably all of your minds, the troubles. But Jesus tells us, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
uh, just to see it from the scriptures, in John 3.13, Jesus speaks about his own home. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. Jesus came from his home where he communed and fellowshiped with the Father in heaven eternally. And he was willing to set aside um, the palace that he lived in, the peace and safety. He left that to take upon himself um, our flesh and blood, to identify with us, to suffer his entire life, not even having a place to be born when he came into this world. Um, and he suffered and ultimately was so abused that he died to rise again so that he might be able to provide a home for us in heaven. And I mean, think of it that Jesus has loved us so much that he is preparing a home. Um, I've known numerous people, I mean, nobody in particular comes to mind, so don't think who I'm guessing or something, but uh, who, who have built their, what they ex anticipated to be their dream home. And within a relatively short period of time, they're unhappy about this in their home, and they're unhappy about that in their home, and unhappy about something else. And this is the one they designed, so, and they designed it for themselves. And, uh, um, but just think that Jesus knows everything about us, and he has prepared a home for us, and there'll be nothing wrong with that home. There's nothing to be unhappy about nothing to be dissatisfied with. And that has been, I mean, it's not that I haven't known this all my life, but it's just, uh, uh, most of my life, it, it's just that it has overwhelmed me that the thoughtfulness of Jesus, that he would uh, know us by name, he would call us by name, uh, and we see in the scriptures that why did he do this? So that we would always be with him. If we look back again at John 14, in, uh, was it verse 3? I believe it was the next slide. That, uh, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's really underscores the whole of the theme of the Bible, is that Jesus wants us with him. He wants us with him. Even in this life, he sent his Holy Spirit, which is, which, uh, is so much like Jesus that the Bible speaks, speaks of it as uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's not just at a distance, but in this life, <clears throat> by his Holy Spirit, Christ lives in our very soul, in our very existence. And uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But it is Christ who lives in me. So anything that I do that's God-pleasing, it's because the Holy Spirit, uh, or Christ in me, enables me to please him. It's not me doing it. It's really Christ doing it in me. 
Uh, now I have to do the living. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Uh, in, the flesh, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I have to do the living, but it's the Holy Spirit who is living in me and enabling me to do whatever it is that I do to bring honor and glory to God. And so uh, e even in this life, we experience eternity. We experience eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So, you know, at what point do we receive eternal life? Well, the very moment that you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit comes into us and lives his life through us. And so even in this life, we're always with him that, uh, yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And that's what I long for when I, you know, I was, what, 10 years old? Or when the Spirit of God was working in me at 8, 9, 10, you know, I wanted him with me. And I knew I desperately needed him. So all creation is moving towards that great day when Jesus returns in glory, as we read in Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so Jesus will come back. We will see him with our eyes. And uh, everyone will know who it is, whether they're believers or unbelievers. They'll know there'll be no need for introduction. They'll know who it is when he comes. And of course, for unbelievers, they will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them because they know their judgment has come and has arrived. And they don't want to have to face it. But for those of us who, uh, who know Christ, as Michael Card can express it in such a different way, he says, when we see him, we'll see a familiar face. Even though we've never physically seen him, we will see him coming on the clouds, and we will know who he is, and he will be familiar to us because he's lived with us as long as we've had faith in Jesus Christ. And so it, it's so troubling in, in our world because it's so impersonal. You know, our culture is so impersonal. It's, uh, um, you, you know, you're, you're, if, if evolution is true, you're just an accident that happened or I don't know, whatever, you know, just uh, th there's no, no, no mind establishing this world. And so, of course, if you believe in, in, in evolution, then there's no judge to ever face. There's nobody at the end either. If there's no, nobody at the beginning, there's nobody at the end. But you see, the Bible is all different. In the beginning, God, uh, <laughs> there's a person at the beginning, and there's a person at the end. When Jesus comes, all of history will end in a person, in the appearance of Jesus Christ, because he is the Lord of Lords, and he is the 
king of kings, and no one can escape him. And so we know that he will come, but he comes to us personally. He calls us by name, just like he called Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, uh, I mean, back when we were looking at this in, in seminary, the teacher said, you know, what happened if Jesus just said to the graves, come forth, all the dead would arise, arose. So he had to make sure that he only got one. <laughs> and that is, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus came waddling out of the, the tomb, all bound up with his grave clothes. Or, and, uh, uh, and so he was particular. But the, the truth is, as many billions of people as there may be, he, he will know us all and call us all by name. Names are important, and he will call us by name, the Bible tells us. So, you know, I've always believed these things, but yet it's become more real to me as my strength ebbs away and it's clear that I'm nearing home. It gets more exciting. And it becomes more real than it's ever been in my life. And I pray that this morning that it will be more real for each of you that has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, our Father is in heaven, uh, even as we pray in, um, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter, um, well, in, in the Beatitudes for starters, okay, in the Lord's Prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, you know, heaven is where the Father dwells, and the Son is at his right hand, as we read in Ephesians 1, uh, 20, that, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's where Christ is, is in heaven. So what is heaven like? You know, if, if there is uh, hope beyond the grave, and it's, it's sad there's so many in our culture today that think that death is the end and that, uh, I don't know, I don't want to elaborate on that, but uh, it is so encouraging that, uh, that Jesus Christ is in heaven and that's where he's preparing a place for us and he wants us to be with him. And if he's in heaven, then that's where we want to be. That's what heaven is, is where Jesus Christ is, is home. And so what is heaven like? Well, just some verses from Scripture from Hebrews 12, too, that with regard to our Savior himself, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy that was set before him. And the joy that he has is that he is gathering 
a whole host of people to be in his presence eternally. And so it gives him great joy that he will be satisfied, as Isaiah 53 says, uh, that let Jesus be satisfied. He's satisfied at the many billions that will be gathered around his throne to delight in him and to worship him uh, forever. And that uh, we are welcomed at his table where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy table fellowship, uh, such as we experience with our families on special occasions, that uh, we enjoy the table fellowship. Well, we'll be at the table with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not quite sure how you get a billion people around the table, but nonetheless, it, it will be personal as well as uh, expansive or including uh, more people than we can imagine. And so there's joy in heaven. Uh, Jesus tells uh, those who serve him. Um, in Matthew 25, he, he says, um, to those who have who've cared for the, the naked or the hungry or those in prison, he says, welcome or enter into the joy of your Lord. His, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord, which is where Christ is. Um, and, and so, you know, in his presence, there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, 11. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. So there are pleasures that we can't even imagine at the right hand of the Father in heaven itself. And so that's what makes meditating on heaven so difficult. We can't, we can't even imagine it. And any imaginative depiction of what heaven is falls far short of the reality. But, uh, but we do know, we do know the joy of um, being in the presence of, of the one whom we love. That um, uh, you know, for me, where wherever my wife is, that's home. My wife and family. You know, we sold a home and just moved almost next door. And it was, it was funny how quickly that home we moved out of is no longer home. But now where we live is home because my wife and family are in that home. And so the same is true about our Savior. Where Jesus is is home. It's a place where we'll be transformed completely into the character of Christ, as we read in 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is. We will see him as he is. And so we'll be transformed both body and soul 
uh, for eternity because we'll see him face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that uh, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. I will know him just as he knows me. In 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And, you know, for those of us who, who uh, you know, I don't know what happened to my body, but it feels like I got somebody else's and I don't know where mine went, but uh, it's, uh, it's a joy to know that these vile bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body, Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. And I don't know why the more contemporary translations want, want to take all the hard edges off the scriptures because the hard edges are what makes it gripping. And uh, I like the old King James where it says that our vile bodies and if you suffer in the body enough, you can say how vile it is. I'll never forget visiting this one fellow who had a kidney stone or something. He had uh, a tube down his nose, and, uh, and it was draining into a bag. And, and the first thing this fellow said to me when I walked in, he says, you're absolutely right. These are vile bodies, <laughs> he, said, he said to me. I said, well, it's in the scripture. I didn't make it up. <laughs> but, <laughs> But these vile bodies will be transformed into his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So in heaven, you know, we'll receive a new body. It's a place where every tear is wiped away. Revelation 21, verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crime. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And all things will be made new. In the very next verse, in verse 5, 21, 5, uh, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, make all things new. So all things will be new in heaven. Everything will be new. It will all be different. And we'll get to sing a new song. And it may be the same old song that we've always sung, but it will be new because we'll, we'll think of many other reasons why we need to rejoice. And the amazing thing about heaven is we'll spend all of eternity amazed that we're even there, that we're even a pr privileged to be in his presence so immediately, so directly, forever, for eternity. And what a joy that will be. So the sufferings now cannot be compared to that future glory as we read in Romans uh, 8, 18 to 21. And this comforts me a great deal. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. So, so in heaven there's liberty. The glorious liberty of the children of God. Um, the redeemed will reign with Christ forever in Revelation 22, verse 5. There shall be no night there, shall be, there shall be no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever 
and ever. Heaven is a place of rest. Uh, we're promised in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God has from his. So is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be in his presence is great gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So why would anyone choose hell? First of all, they don't know the promises of God with regard to heaven. And whatever they imagine heaven to be, it's way short of what it truly is. And, and for the most part, they don't want to be in God's presence. They don't want to have to sing his praises. And so they choose to go to hell because of their deep-seated rebellion against God, as we read in Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. You know, they're made in his image and, and they can see the glory of God in their own body. Uh, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. So even the wicked see this even now. So they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, and it's talking about unbelievers here, they know God. They know that he's there. They know something about his power and his glory and, and his, uh, his being God. And so everyone is without excuse. But they choose not to acknowledge his presence, not to be thankful. And so it's just stunning to me when people say, I want, in order to believe in God, I gotta see evidence. I said, um, the rain wasn't enough to convince you this morning. It's so green. I'm beginning to feel like we live in England. It rains every week, at least, you know, and that everything is so green and lush. And, of course, it is only June the 12th. But, uh, but, but nonetheless, he waters the earth. Um, the sun came up this morning. But, you know, if you're not grateful... If you're not grateful for the beauty of the day, if you're not grateful that your heart beats regularly and we're not trying to rush you to the hospital to get it back in a rhythm or something, then you take it for granted and you think, I did this. I did this. I'm healthy because, you know, I go to work out all the time or I eat right and I do, you know, everything to take care of myself. And so, so that's why... Um, that, that's why I'm, I'm, in, I'm so capable and so able. And don't think for a moment that the Lord can't strike your health and take it away in a day, in a moment. And so what kind of arrogance is that to think, I did this. You didn't do anything. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's a children's song that Michael Card has about... Uh, Miracles, he says, you want to see a miracle? Look in the mirror. <laughs> and I thought, that's so true. Look in the mirror. What, what more proof do you need? That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as broken as my body is, it's still 
shocks me at how resilient it is and how, and how fearfully and wonderfully made I am. Um, it's just, it's, it's stunning. But it takes a heart of gratitude. You see what it says in this, uh, although they knew God, they did not glorify him, God. Uh, nor were they thankful. That's the foundation of atheism. That's the foundation of godlessness. That's the foundation of all of our sin. We're not thankful for what you got. And so we think we have to break God's laws in order to be satisfied. And I can guarantee you that it will not, never satisfy. You violate his commands. You violate his character. You will never, ever, 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 ever really be happy. because this world will never fully satisfy you. Oh, it can satisfy you a great deal, but it will never fully satisfy you. Only Christ will satisfy you. And so why do people choose to go to hell? Because they don't want to be thankful to God. They don't want to trust him. And so they'd rather choose to curse God, as Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, you know, in a fairly lengthy passage, but these are all Old Testament scriptures. As it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who, no one, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit or lies. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And, and that pretty, pretty well defines our culture today. It, it's, it's really unbelievable. The cursing, to curse God, to take his name in vain, uh, or his son's name in vain, that, that's what characterizes people. I mean, they can't hardly talk without some kind of profanity or, or disgusting. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's the foundation of it all. There's no fear that I can defy God. I can take his name in vain. I can, I can um, you know, steal his time, steal the gifts that he's given me and just use them for my own benefit and glory. <clears throat> not for his benefit. And so the reality is, if you don't want to worship God, if you don't want to delight in him, sing his praises, you can't bring yourself to do it. Do you even want to go to heaven? No. And so everyone who is in hell has chosen to go to hell. It's their own will that has driven them there because they would consider having to sing the new song of praise of, to the Lamb of God. They would find that to be hell to them. They have to do that because they so hate God. And if you're not sure about it, just read Romans 3 over again. <coughs> In hell... One may curse and yell all you like, because you know what? There's no one there to hear you. You're all alone.
in darkness. <clears throat> Jude 12, 13. <clears throat> Verses 12 and 13. There are spots, I don't know, this is describing the wicked. Um, These are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only in themselves. They are clouds without water carried away by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved. And this this verse terrified me. (laughs) Reserved. Whom is reserved, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. If there's anything I've learned in my physical condition, it's two things that I hate the most the dark and being alone. I hate those the most. And so when I began to think about what hell is like, you're in the dark alone forever. That was blood curdling to me. That I can relate to. But it's not just there that we read it. We read it again, Second Peter, verses two, verse two, verses chapter two, verse seventeen. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness, forever. And so they're in outer darkness, where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus tells us in Matthew, twenty-five. <clears throat> Verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there you have Jesus in Jesus' own words. And again in chapter 8, verse 12, <clears throat> the sons of the kingdom um, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so uh, I was thinking it was just the one verse, but there's four clear verses that what is hell? It's outer darkness. Now, what, what is, that's total darkness. What can you see in total darkness? Nothing. Because even in this life, there's always some light around that even if you close your eyes, you know, you can still see light even through your eyelids. Not very much, but nonetheless, it's not total darkness. But, uh, <clears throat> but it's like blindness. Somebody said, you know what? People think that if you just close your eyes, you can imagine being blind. He said, no, you can't. He says, imagine trying to see out of the back of your head. That's blindness. You don't see anything. And so if you can imagine being in the dark and can't see any, you have no one, you, you can scream and you can curse God all you like because there's nobody there to hear. Nobody to correct you. You can have at it. Do you like cursing? You can do it eternally. Total misery. And so hell is a deliberate judgment of God's part. It's eternal. The sin done in time is against an eternal God. And, and there's much of the supposedly Bible-believing church that doesn't believe in eternal hell anymore. But it's always been taught, it's always been believed by the, the Christian, the Orthodox Christian Church. It's in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that we believe in an eternal hell. And, uh, and I had to read this huge two-volume work by Charnock on the, 
existence and attributes of God. And he only goes through six attributes in his two volumes, in uh, two big volumes, at least 350 pages. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got t it became tedious, but it was back when I could read much quicker and, and, and so forth, so I, I plowed through it. But then I got this one truth from it. Why does a sin done in time have to be paid for eternally? I never thought of that question. <clears throat> and it's because it's against an eternal God. It's the person you've offended. It's not the fact that you did it in time and that you're a creature yourself, but because you have offended Almighty God, then it's, it's to be paid for until your debt is paid, as Matthew 18 says. And unfortunately, your debt can never be paid because even if you started the moment you went to hell, <clears throat> you've already missed a certain amount of time and you need to be eternal in order to pay for your own, own crime, your own sin, your own wickedness. And so you can never do it. And so we, we read, for instance, in Matthew 10, 28, is it, that, uh, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you see, there's very little fear of God in our culture. Can sin, and psycholo we can psychologize it away and, and call it something else, uh, a euphemism of some kind to make it not sound so bad. But uh, the reality is if, if you sin against an eternal, holy God, then it must be paid for eternally. And so Christ is to be feared as the Lord of eternal life and eternal second death, as we read in Revelation uh, 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And now I've thought about this for a long time. What's so horrible about the second death? Well, de death is bad in this life. We'd all agree on that. Death is terrible. But the one thing about God's mercy in this life is, you know, once the bullet strikes you, you die, and it's over. But the second death you're always dying and never actually die. That's blood curdling too. It's like when you're sleeping at night and you think you're falling out of bed, <clears throat> but you never fall. It's like thinking you're feeling like you're dying, but you don't actually die. And that's stunning as well. And so, as we reflect upon <clears throat> the joys of heaven, the grief of hell, it has motivated within me a greater uh, motivation to want to minister the gospel to whoever I'm able to so that they will not have to endure the horrors of living in the dark alone, constantly dying and never dying and, and whatever other weeping and gnashing of teeth and the rest of it. Uh, the fire, and so forth. And so um, it, it has motivated a greater 
desire to win people to Christ and to deliver them from this horror that they face without Christ. But it is also um, wonderful to know that I have a Savior, the eternal Son of God who came into this world, who lived a perfect life and died and rose again in a seat at the right hand of the Father so that I can be accepted as righteous because Christ went through hell upon the cross. And I know, and, that, and that's questioned in the Apostles' Creed where it says he descended into hell. And, uh, and a lot of Christians don't want to say that. But, uh, but that's because they think of hell, I guess, is the, the fire and brimstone and whatever. I don't know what they think. But uh, <clears throat> the reality is, if you're separated from God, that's hell. And so as I've reflected on it in the past couple of months, really, as a 10-year-old, when I was motivated to want to know Christ and to live in his presence so that I would not live my whole life alone, I was fearful of hell, but I hadn't identified it as such, or no one had ever identified it that way to me. And so I did have that fear of, of going to hell. I didn't... I mean, I didn't want to be in hell in this life, living alone in the darkness of my own sin and selfishness. But we read in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21, I started to re recite the verse, for he, for he made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to become sin for us. You know, he took our sin upon himself. All of our iniquity is laid upon him. He took our sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, um, he not only paid the penalty of our sin, but he also gives us his righteousness so that God the Father loves us as much as his own son. And as you've heard me say many times, that seemed unbelievable. That, that, they couldn't be, that, that can't be right. But that you can read it in John 17 that he loves us as much as he loves his own son. And he is preparing a home for us so that uh, we can live in his presence eternally. And so we are righteous in Christ. And, and <clears throat> uh, how much I owe, it's, it's, I dearly love that song. Not till then will I know how much I owe when I'm clothed in his righteousness, clothed in a righteousness not my own, he starts out the song, McShane does. Uh, and uh, we're clothed in his righteousness. And so he loves us as much as his own son. Isaiah 53, again we read, um, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he paid for it on the cross. And so what was the cost to him? What we read in Jesus' last words from the cross, Matthew 27, verse 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you understand hell, he was enduring hell at that moment because God the Father had turned his back on him. He never called his father God. 
I don't know, maybe that's not quite right. But anyway, you know, I mean, he acknowledged him to be God, but he always called him Father. In every prayer, he says, Father, 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 Father. But, but this one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father had turned his back on him and allowed him to be suffered because he had become sin, and God is of purer eyes than to behold sin. And so he couldn't even look on his own son. And so how do you think... Or how does any human being think that they can stand before a holy God and explain away all their sin? It's not possible. If Jesus Christ had to suffer rejection by his Father, then any person who thinks that they can justify themselves is lying to themselves at the great cost of putting their own soul in jeopardy. And so that's why we sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive all honor and glory and blessing and riches. And what we'll sing in heaven is that song over and over again. It'll always be new because we'll realize another reason why we shouldn't have been in heaven. <laughs> we shouldn't be there. <laughs> but uh, in Christ, we are righteous, and so that's why we're in the Father's presence and in, in our Savior's presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so then you'll be glad to sing. Uh, it's tough to sing in worship service. How grateful are you? I love it when people are, are tone deaf and cannot sing except in, in one monotone. And I think I've commented, the, the mentor that I had up in Westfield, New Jersey, he really sang bad, but he always sang loud. <laughs> and it was always the same note. And he sang so badly that they turned the, the, the um, amplifier off in the nursery because they were afraid it would make all the kids tone deaf. <laughs> I don't know, that was the joke anyways. <laughs> so, but... Uh, uh, and because the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Come into his presence with singing. So why can't you sing? You'll do it eternally. And if you don't want to do it here, the question is, do you want to do it eternally? I don't know, my wife pointed out this quote from Spurgeon knowing what I was going to preach on. Morality will keep you out of, out of jail, but only the blood of Jesus will keep you out of hell, from Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and so, uh, um, you know, you ponder, you know, you're near home, and you wonder, you know, what, what will it be like to go through the valley of the shadow of death and a sermon came back to me that I heard uh, from Peter Marshall um, when I was a child again, and, uh, and that I never forgot. And that is uh, the story of a little boy, nine-year-old boy who had, had a, uh, a fatal disease. And his mother was trying to comfort him constantly and try to take his mind off of his situation and everything. But he was bedridden and couldn't, couldn't get out of bed. And, uh, and after all of her efforts, 
Finally, the, her son says to her, Mom, what is death like? He knew that it was coming. And so he'd been thinking about it in spite of her best efforts to try to take his mind off it. What is death like? And so she was overwhelmed by the question and um, made up some reason to go down to the kitchen to take care of something because she had to think about how do I answer this? And she just cried out to the Lord, what do I tell him? And so she came back and she said, son, you know what it's like when, when you know, we're reading to you in bed or whatever and, and you fall asleep? And you don't wake up, you just fall sound asleep. But when you do wake up, you're not in our bed, you're in your own bed. She said, that's what it's like. That the Father will take you and put you in your own bed, in your own home. And so that came back to me. And so, you know, all, all of those things change <clears throat> what you look forward to in the future. It, it's why uh, growing older is an ascent, not a descent, because home becomes way more precious. And the Father's love for us through Christ Jesus is way more precious when it's a reality to you and not just something that is in the distant future as it always felt to me when I was younger. <laughs> it was in the distant future. But uh, it's not so distant anymore. But the joy of the Lord is sweeter than it's ever been before. And I pray that every single one of you will know that joy of what it is to know God, to live for Him, to delight in Him, to know His presence, because in His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement of your word. Thank you so much for the blessing of this congregation and the privilege to be able to share your word with those who are hungry to receive it and to hear it. And I thank you and praise you for um, the faith of those who receive it and delight in your, your word and look forward to their home in heaven. And I just pray that there will be none in here that would ever have to go through um, being sent into outer darkness alone, only to die over and over and over again. I pray that you deliver them from that, that they might know the glory and honor of knowing eternal life in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Uh, I believe we're saying at the end, crown him with many crowns. <clears throat>